on, Champagne Sharks? This is Trevor Beaulieu, or everyone calls me T. You can meet, well, the show on Twitter, uh, at Champagne Sharks, um, one, one word. You can, most importantly, go to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks and become a fan of the show for $5 or I mean, you don't have to become a patron to be a fan of the show, but uh, if you want to get double the episodes, you know, for $5 a month, you get double the new episodes you get access to the whole archive of back episodes which i think unlocks an extra 100 episodes you get access to the discord voice and chat server for we can talk to other patrons and share information and if you're a member of that you get to also get word of upcoming guests and ask them questions you know so instead of just finding out who the guests are when the show comes out you also get a preview of the guests and you get to ask them different questions that you might have so that's really cool and also you get access to the newsletter of the show so you know all that's a good deal five dollars a month patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado uh we have our guest alan siegel if you don't mind introducing yourself and letting people know where to find you Hi, uh, I am a staff writer at TheRinger.com, and I write about sports and pop culture. Tell us what you've been up to during the quarantine recently, like, like, like where, what city you're in, just in general, like what your quarantine life has been, has been like. I'm always kind of curious to see what people are doing during their quarantine, and not just like with pop culture watching or anything, just in general. Have you been home all the time, been home all day? Yeah, I, uh, I live in, the, in, in Washington, D.C., um, in the Columbia Heights area, and... So I'm in an apartment. I'm quarantined. The The only sort of saving grace that I have is that I have a dog. And so I'm really forced to get out of the house, you know, uh, three, four, five times a day with with him to walk. Um, and I sometimes I sort of leave without with without a mask. And it's you know, you you sort of forget about everything that's going on. And then it just hits you again, you know, every few minutes when you see somebody walking by with, you know, gloves and, and a mask on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I work from home anyway, so this isn't all that different, but just mentally, it's a little uh, harder just but knowing you know, that we, I... But you know, yeah, you know, there's something weird about knowing that you kind of have to be home, whether yeah. you're choosing to be home. Like, like, even if you might have been planning to stay home all day today anyway, something about knowing the conditions that you're staying under home under makes it feel different somehow you know what i mean yeah you again just not having the option of going to just grab a coffee or go somewhere else to work for for an hour yeah definitely kind of fucks with you yeah and, and you know i really miss this is this is what's weird i've been not going to bars as much as i used to over the past year or so i've just it's just something like like that's kind of naturally happened it wasn't like i was making some kind of grand teetotaling gesture like oh i'm gonna <laughs> do a new year's resolution it was just kind of i got into like sleeping earlier more and getting up earlier and trying to be like more productive with reading and stuff and bars just kind of dropped off my i become obsessed with uh wanting to go to a bar even though i probably wouldn't have been going to one none of this happened like, like something about knowing something was closed off to you i think is human psychology is really funny like that <laughs> yeah i mean just just the idea of i, I the other day i started having these weird i mean it, it sounds so silly these these fantasies of just going to a movie on a summer day like i used to do when i was you know 17 18 19 years old and 
and it's just it, it's shit that you don't think about and then all of a sudden when it's taken away it just feels like such a luxury yeah yeah and, and you, you know what i really hate about this? this is what i really hate about this right i think what you're describing is something that i feel i think a lot of people feel which is like some variation of when this is all over I'm going to appreciate X, Y, and Z. And I and I know myself, when this is all over, I'm probably going to lapse back into the same <laughs> same uh, bad habits or take the same things for granted. I, I don't want to, but, you know, like, you know, but I, I was kind of thinking about that. Like, oh, I took so much for granted, you know, all these things I could have been doing that I wasn't doing, and now uh, I can't do them. And, yeah, I feel like, because what you're saying sounds great. And ideally, once this is uh, over, you'll start doing those things you haven't been letting yourself uh do you know what i mean like uh like you said like taking in like a nice movie by yourself and stuff yeah i mean i think we're so i mean god i'm not the only person who said this a lot of people have but you know we're (laughs) we're so used to having now like everything at our fingertips and it's you know on one hand it's good because we can stay home and watch whatever we want now but at the same time you know we're we're sort of robbed of a lot of stuff that like you said, we take for granted. It's also kind of made me realize, for, for some reason, even though I spent a lot of time doing this stay-at-home stuff, uh, regardless, like, you know, streaming things or watching things and stuff, instead of going out and being social, for some reason, being forced to do it instead of having the option has somehow made it more obvious to me how empty it is. I, I, I don't know. Like, for some reason, binge-watching now under these conditions, I just think, like, man, this is just a really empty way to live like this is a bad deal like like, <laughs> like like we traded off something bad that i don't know if we can get fully get back whereas before having the option in the back of my mind that i could be doing this other thing i'm just choosing not to um kind of made it okay for me to just sit around and spend a whole afternoon binge watching stuff i don't know yeah i mean the the thing about binge watching before the virus was that it was sort of a you know something you looked forward to you know like uh i remember i i didn't watch breaking bad for example you know right away but i remember being so excited to just plow through it in two weeks and now it's like almost like, oh, we have to do this. You know, we can't, you know, sometimes when I work, I would like put a basketball game on in the background or, you know, just something live going on. And now you you can't do that. So the, you know, the only thing you can do is put on something old. I think, you know, anything happened, I think I was always thinking about all this stuff that we had, a kind of break from this other stuff that was work, where there was an actual day job, where there was socializing. Like, you know, we socialize, you know, you have a good time, but you're happy to kind of get home and, you know, be whatever, uh, be away from it, all and stuff. And I think there's a certain aspect to which this stuff was seen as a break, this other stuff you have to do outside. But I don't think I ever realized until now the extent to which I needed the other stuff as a break from the home stuff, as in like the binge watching or the sitting in the house, the introverted stuff has kind of become the job, like, you know, that I now need a break from. I I, I think, I think I didn't kind of realize like the mental, um, like I just, I just viewed doing stuff out in the world as the chore. And I, I never really thought of it as an actual um, escape from things. Like, you know, it's, uh... and I think we kind of have an introverted society that makes it easy to kind of, lose track of our social needs you know that that these aren't just choices like these are actual social needs yeah and and i think for me you know i was a freelancer for almost 10 years and so it was often this feeling of not be like always being on right so i didn't work 24 hours a day but i could you know 
there were weekends I worked and and again, it's sort of going back to what you said at the beginning. Now there's really no escaping it because before it was great in the sense that I had a flexible schedule and that, you know, if I needed to get a haircut in the middle of the day, you know, not all the time, but I could take an hour or go to a doctor or something like that. But now that's just like not even an option. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. My 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 barber texted me. I started thinking to myself, like, is he just saying hi, or is he trying to like kind of like hint, hint, wink, wink, uh, <laughs> get a haircut, <laughs> or, or you know, give me get a haircut? And part of me was kind of thinking, like, hey, I'm I'm kind of bored enough to just let him <laughs> come by and give me a haircut. But I started thinking that's probably not the safest thing in the world. Like, I'd be dumb if I let him come over, give me a haircut, then I get like COVID nineteen <laughs> as a result. <laughs> getting your cut, yeah, 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 yeah. To get a haircut that no one but my wife is gonna see anyway. <laughs> Like, like, uh, but I was that I was that welcoming of the break in, in monotony. But have you been watching Breaking Bad for the first time recently? Is that what you were saying? No. So, so I missed the first three seasons. So, so this was like 2012 or something. But I caught up in about two weeks. I would say. Okay. Oh, oh, okay. So you were kind of filling in um the blanks. So when you first watched it, you just picked up where it was and just plowed through and then filled in the blanks just uh, recently? Is that what Oh, no. So, um, so I think it started in 2008. So what I did was in about 2012, I started from the beginning and watched, you know, up until the whenever it was, uh, until I was up to date. And then I picked up probably season four or five, like from, from when it was first run again. Oh, okay. Got you. How many times have you seen the show? So it's funny with with that one, you know, I I loved it the first time I saw it, but it's just not a show that I feel the need to watch again. I, I, I did a second watch of it and I thought I never would. Something made me do a second watch. I don't know what made me do a second watch, but I just decided to do it. And it's it's interesting to watch a second time because um it holds up. It held up better in some ways I thought it wouldn't, mm -hmm. but it was way worse in other ways that I didn't remember. Before we get into that, uh, can you tell people like what you write about and what you do and what your interests are and uh, what brought you to this point? Because I think it'll help kind of frame why we're talking about the things that we're talking about during this episode. Sure. So I started as a sports writer. I'm from uh, the Boston area. So for about five years, mostly covered high school sports. And then I later uh, became a freelancer and started mixing in some pop culture stuff. Uh, in about 2016, when The Ringer started, I was freelancing for them and I got hired full time about a year ago. And I do a lot of uh, pop culture retrospectives where I sort of look back at the making of a movie, TV show, album, different kind of concert. I think a lot of that stemmed from probably two things. One, I would say just my, admittedly, my personal interests. I'm 36, going to be 37 next month. So I'm interested in stuff from the 80s and 90s. And also as a freelancer, it's kind of hard to stay on the pulse and write about a lot of really modern things because staff writers usually do that. So I would try to pitch stories that maybe a staffer wouldn't have have time for or it just wasn't sort of on their radar because they were focused on covering current tv and movies and now you are a staff writer i am yeah so it's kind of interesting you feel you saw a niche 
that staff writers weren't filling. Like maybe you even wanted to like write about the niche that they were filling, but you know, you realize that, you know, uh, this is a good way to kind of get articles published and, and work by doing what they're not doing. And ironically enough, you've managed to use that to get a staff position uh, still writing that stuff. And I find that um, interesting. Like when you became a staff writer, were you told um, uh, this is what, we want you to do? Was it that enjoy doing it so much you want to keep doing it? Or is it a combination of the both? Do you find that you still keep doing that type of article about pop culture and stuff, but mixed with other things or like, like, yeah, it's a really good question because I, I'll give, I'll, I'll give my company credit because they hired me and, you know, I hadn't had a full-time journalism job in a long time. So I was, you know, not worried, but I was, you know, a little bit just sort of wondering how things would change. And to be honest, you know, I think they, they've they hired me to sort of do these big kind of centerpiece uh, articles. And the good part of it is that I can mix in some, some current stuff as well. So yeah, like I would say my bread and butter is still these retrospectives, but, you know, it takes a while to do one. So, you know, you can't just churn those out you know, every week. But again, it's been nice to sort of mixing in some some modern stuff as well. One thing I find that's really interesting about kind of things that you do, right? Um, I'm not really sure where this kind of came from as far as idea that you can write about TV and nostalgia and things that middlebrow and lowbrow with the same care as something that's highbrow. But I think in general, like media has kind of been going into that flattening phase where there's where there's things where it's like for example like the breaking bad thing when i watch breaking bad i was watching it and I, one of the things that was passing through my mind when i was watching it is and it, this is something that's happening with the show that i'm re-watching now currently i'm on the third season of which is mad men but both those shows i'm watching them i'm like are these middle brow shows or low brow shows or highbrow shows and they kind of have elements of both like there's not really a pressure announce yourself as one and then behave accordingly like like you know like, like there's some things that happen on those shows are done with such care like you know they, they remind you of a cinematic moment in like european 1950s movie but then there'll be some decidedly action moment beats action movie beats or mad men a lot of it kind of feels like a telenovela at times with prestige tv production values and and acting and i feel like it's kind of trickled down to the way they're covered as well like like the same way like a someone who's a movie star easily do a guest stop guest spot on a sitcom or do an ad selling coffee you know but still not lose their um a-list actor appeal and a reality star can do a cameo in a hollywood movie like i feel like writing's kind of become the same way and wanted to know like where you thought that started if you think there's something that's always kind of been there but it just gained prominence like like i think when i first noticed it was with the writer uh Alan Siepenwall, like like when I first discovered Alan Siepenwall's writing, I was thinking, oh, wow, this is a really long take on just an episode of Breaking Bad. And he's really um, gone deep on it where, you know, to me, I was like, oh, this is cool drugs and, and shoot him up episode, you know? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because he's, you know, I, I enjoy his writing a lot. And I think it's interesting because I think maybe the problem is that he sort of and this is not his fault, is he sort of... I know Zachary going. Yeah, like helped usher in this this recap culture. And so many recaps are just not value added. Um, I hate yep. to put it like that, but no, it, no, it's... No. It's yeah. true. And I'll even add, I think to a degree, he might become a little bit of a parody of himself. Like, like I, I saw a sense a little bit of a backlash to him as well, you know, like, um, but I, I know what you mean. Like, a lot of people don't have the chops really to do what he does. But then, on, yeah, on top of that, and maybe it's not his fault. Maybe it's 
because of all the imitators. Because that happens sometimes. Sometimes you get so many um, lesser imitators that it ruins the effect of reading the original. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you use Mad Men as an example because, you know, you talk about lowbrow, middlebrow, and highbrow. One of the interesting things with a lot of the prestige TV is if you look at the raw numbers, not a lot of people are watching these shows. I, I think Tom Skoka wrote something about this in Slate maybe seven or eight years ago. And just one of the funny things about Mad Men is that if you read even now an article about the 60s, it often references Mad Men. And it's just like, you know, the 60s existed before Mad mm -hmm. Men. And yet it's still this, it, it's this touchstone. Again, I enjoy the show, but it's just funny that it's become this cultural touchstone. And if you look at the amount of people, like I think Chuck Klosterman has sort of said this, where it's like any random episode of Laverne and Shirley was watched by 50 times more people than a Mad Men episode. Yeah. I mean, you can even do it today. You don't even have to use the past. You can look at, for example, I remember when I first had this experience was probably in the 2000s of taking a look at what was in the top 10. It was the first time in my life compared to when I was a kid. When I was a kid and there was only like three or four networks, you know, yeah. uh, pre-Fox, post-Fox. Cable wasn't really doing original programming. What was in the ratings was also what was generating uh, pop culture and critical buzz or what was uh, water cooler talk, right? So it's like so it's like uh, the high, most highest rated show is also the water cooler show. Hmm. The first time I realized that this big divergence happened was uh, when I saw the ratings of Two and a Half Men. <laughs> At the time, this is when like, I think Mad Men was still on and The Wire was still on and all this stuff. And I saw the top 10. It was all these CBS sitcoms and CBS procedurals, uh, CSI. Two and a Half Men was crushing it and stuff. But you never saw like recaps of Two and a Half Men. You never like talked to your friend. Like I remember when Growing Pains would happen. Next day, everyone at school would be talking about what happened in the previous episode of Growing Pains <laughs> the night before or different strokes or whatever. But those shows also were crushing it ratings wise. And it wasn't kind of like that anymore. It's all these things that crush it ratings wise that nobody talks about and there's the things that you think based on how they're talked about or maybe in the bubble that you're in you know uh this is what your friends and your co-workers are watching and you realize okay i'm out of touch with uh, america it kind of imagine how the culture wars are kind of going where everyone has their own source of news everyone has their own filter bubbles and stuff yeah it's, it's interesting because you know i was just thinking of like the big bang theory right so it's kind of what Big you're one. saying it's like nobody talks about that on twitter so but you know for example like do you have you seen i think you should leave the sketch show oh yeah is that the one that has the guy from lonely island um he let's see is there a connect it's tim robinson he was on detroiters yeah 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 he 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 um he's part of the comedy trio lonely island that has um oh wait a minute is he not the guy from no oh, he... i i i maybe maybe oh you, you know yeah. what you know what this is crazy you're right you're right that he <laughs> is not the guy from lonely island i've seen the show but i somehow merged him one of the guys from lonely island oh yeah yeah but i, I know what, i know what you're talking about uh it had the skit it's the one that had the skit about uh, like honk if you're horny right and yes exactly yeah Con okay Connor cool, O'Malley. Cool. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, okay well, yeah i bring that up just because i love it and if you like the memes are everywhere but you know Netflix doesn't uh, release numbers, but I, you know, if you asked anyone like not in that bubble, right? People who aren't on Twitter, basically, I don't know how many people have. I mean, I would hope that they have, but yeah, you, it's just it's so fractured. Yeah, yeah. There's a term for that. I see it called selection bias or sample bias. Hmm. I forget what it is, but this idea that the particular sample that you're working with is so out of whack, you can't really use it as a gauge for a larger trend. You know, like like so. 
whatever name of the fallacy is, like, you know, some people say, oh, this study is suffering from yeah. uh, selection of sample bias, you know, because you only talk to uh, Upper West Side Manhattanites, you know, and and they would say that about like elections and stuff when, when a Republican would win. They would say, oh, this poll had a bad bias. And Twitter is is a very unique sample. Like, like Twitter is not, I don't, I don't know if you can even call it influential. I guess it is influential, but not in the way that people think. Like it's, it's influential like in thought in certain circles, mm-hmm. but that matters for less now because before the kind of people who would gravitate Twitter were also the same kind of people who were on the only three networks that everybody watched. So they had a disproportionate amount of sway, but those same people, they might be in the mainstream legacy media jobs now, but a lot of people be getting all their information, a Facebook feed from talk radio or something altogether. Like like that elite, elite thinker class doesn't kind of have a stranglehold on people's eyeballs and eardrums that they used to be. So now it's kind of like a bunch of us just on Twitter talking to each other and <laughs> struggling to have the same uh, impact outside. I mean, we've seen that with Trump. I mean, all these people, like in the old days, they would have destroyed Trump. You know, all those uh, scandals that they had, all the bad talking points they had, you know, would have worked. But now those people might have uh, been swayed by all the negative coverage. They'll just ignore all those people altogether and call them fake news and just be on their Facebook feeds all day or on 4chan, you know, exchanging links or uh, or watching Ben Shapiro do his podcast. Right. And it's it's like a fool's errand to try to appease those people because they like you said like you, they're they're in their bubble and they're not leaving it and i think part of the problem is that well one of the things with i think that type of prestige media job maybe i won't get paid you know a huge amount but one of the perks is you know i get to have a certain amount of influence and sway and kind of like a cultural uh presence and i feel like that cultural presence kind of morphed where it's just people kind of preaching to each other in the choir you know that that's that's what people in those jobs have now as opposed to uh, a stranglehold on joe average and i th- i think it's kind of led to this place where this disconnect that you talked about happened like like another example is the show girls if you were to go by uh twitter you would have thought girls and and uh the cultural critics you would thought girls was killing it you know what i mean and right. When I finally saw the ratings for girls, and I apologize for people who have heard me use these examples before, but I always use examples of girls that are insecure of two shows I thought were doing really good until I saw the ratings. And I'm like, okay, I mean, they have like a couple of million people. It's not no one watching, but in national TV numbers, that's not really anything. I mean, for a tweet, that's like amazing. But for a national TV show, that's pretty paltry. Yeah, it was funny when, you know, we do a lot of Game of Thrones coverage. And when the show ended, you know, the numbers, like if you looked at the numbers, they were bigger than typical dramas, you know, on HBO. They were they were pretty, pretty huge. But again, you know, this argument started popping up like, oh, Game of Thrones is, you know, the it's the it's the end of monoculture. And like, if you looked at the numbers, not as st- Still not that many people were into Game of Thrones as other, as other things. I just think that, you know, I know it's a cliche to talk about monoculture, but it, it you know, that ended, I think, even well before this. Can you define what monoculture is for people who don't know? Yeah, it's, it's basically that, you know, most of society is sort of, at least this is how I see it, is uh, tuned into this to the same stuff. And, and the, you know, the easy example is television until the 80s you know there were three major networks so everyone watched the same thing and had the same conversations and 
you know, that's sort of dissipated, I think, just because there are so many more options now. Uh, so I think what you were saying, what you maybe I'm wrong, but I think what you meant to say was a return to monoculture. Like people were handing Game of Thrones as a return to monoculture, as in everyone's watching the same stuff again. Because you said the end. Oh, yes. The- oh, um, my bad. I, I think my point was that people people saw it as like the last gasp of monoculture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether temporary or not, it was one of the few times that we kind of returned to. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. We had some false alarms with the return to monoculture. Like Breaking Bad was one. Like Breaking Bad was one that I think it broke some ratings records, but I'm sure there were probably cable rating records. And if you, you know, again, compared it to um, your typical CSI episode, it probably still was uh, pale to that, you know? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. Like that, that it, they're still not doing what, there's, there's definitely a disconnect. Like there's things that have the eyeballs that should make it monoculture, but no one talks about it. And there's stuff that seems to, be a return to monoculture as in, okay, this is actually a sign of shared culture, but not a lot of people are really watching it. Yeah. And it's interesting because Breaking Bad, I don't know if you know this, they they had to fight for a final season. You know, they weren't, you know, they were, again, water cooler. They were the ultimate water cooler show at the time, but the ratings were not as big. were not big enough that they could they could have guaranteed a final season. And, you know, their final season was split and they really had to fight AMC for it. So, again, this. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. That's interesting because I knew it started out with really bad ratings, but I thought by the halfway point, they were kind of successful enough that they could uh, write their own uh, ticket. That's very... Oh, yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm looking it up now. And as recently, as late as the fourth season finale, it only had 1.9 million viewers. Mm-hmm. And that was up 22% from season three. So, yeah, the ratings were actually pretty low, pretty late into the game. Yeah, and it's, it's again, it's stunning to think about now that, it, you know, again, it's a show that's considered one of the best of all time. And how many how many seasons did they had? They had six, right? Yeah, or I think I think that f- depending how you look, I think that the last season it was like oh, half. Oh yeah. yeah, so it was five seasons. Okay, yeah. so so then basically that means so oh so if the fourth season finale delivered only one point nine million viewers, that's basically the finale before the final season. Oh, so you're right. The reason why it surprised me is because I know for the series finale, which is the end of season five, it had reached 10.3 million viewers. So basically the season five finale had 10 times the viewers yeah. as a season four finale. That's oh, that's amazing. I didn't realize it took that long for it to get ratings. Wow. Yeah. And I yeah, think... Yeah, oh, I knew it started low. I knew it ended high. But until you just told me, I didn't know that four-fifths of the run was low. Yeah, and I, I think that show sort of coincided with the start of streaming so or the you know the in in you know people had streaming but it really started to to explode you know what six seven years ago so i think people got into that show through netflix or other streaming platforms and then they were able to pick up in the last season or two yes yes because i say that from experience because that's how i Mm -hmm. uh, i got into it through netflix and word of mouth and in the old days, I wouldn't have been able to, to have happened. Like, I mean, that's happened in small ways in other things. Like, for example, um, Austin Powers, it didn't make that much money, number one. The, the first one, a lot of people, and I was one of them, discovered it on VHS and word of mouth. And it got so popular that it basically earned the sequel off of the afterlife of the movie. And then part two ended up doing way better in the theater than part one, if I remember correctly. It at least opened higher, but uh, it built a lot of its buzz from the word of mouth and uh vhs success and i think streaming has kind of amplified that effect even more where like shows you know they stream and they end up 
getting uh, audiences late in the game. Yeah, because I did a three-season binge of Breaking Bad and basically got in. I got in around, I think, last year, maybe it was probably the third season I got in, like the middle of the third season. Well, it, it's funny, like as Austin Powers is an interesting example, because, you know, that movie was just quoted incessantly. It, it almost it almost became a parody like it's a parody of a parody because like the the quotes just became so annoying but also back then you know studios made a shitload of money on dvds and now you know people might discover or like a movie might have a second life but it's far less lucrative for a studio at least i think you know for it to be on a streaming platform than selling a couple of million DVDs. Can you repeat that again, that last part about streaming platform versus DVDs? Oh, yeah. So basically, you know, I think I, I you know, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fairly certain that the DVD market was at its peak far more lucrative than just, you know, oh, dumping a movie on a stre- streaming platform. I, I totally agree. There was this book that, um, it came out a while ago. I want to actually read it again, but it was... A book called Free, and and um, I forget who, who who wrote it. I think it was Chris Anderson, uh, somebody involved with with Wire. It's called Free: The Future of a Radical Price. He did a lot of YouTube lectures on it. And it was about why zero dollars is the future of business, and mm. it was he was editor in chief of Wired magazine. I don't know if he still is, and um, he's one of those people. Wired in general is one of those tech evangelist type of publications where they're very uncritical toward the impact of tech, and they're like very big boosters and cheerleaders of impact of tech culture. They're like tech tech utopianists and tech optimists. But uh, it was kind of predicting or calling like a model that I think has become like the norm now of, you know, hey, piracy with Uber competition, Uber availability or through internet, prices of everything are going lower and lower and free is the future of business. And you have to embrace that. You have to just be willing to treat everything like a lost leader that you can make money on later on. Like just, you know, get the eyeballs, figure out ways to monetize on the back end, you know, and, and everybody kind of does it to a degree. I mean, this show was kind of uh, bought into that model. Like instead of just doing like a paid service, we have free episodes and you pay and you get, uh, the hope is that the free episodes you like enough and you pay and unlock uh, extra ones. But it's become so normalized now. The book doesn't even seem like that that radical, but I think streaming is kind of an example of that. Uh, influencers are an example of that. Like, like this idea that eyeballs, even eyeballs that aren't paying anything are all that matters. And and then later on, we'll figure out how to monetize them like that. You see that South Park episode with like those gnomes and they have a business plan. And it's like um, part one, do this. Part two, questions, questions, question. Then part three, uh, profit. And I feel like that's what our culture is now. Like just streams, eyeballs, etc. Et do that now. Get it. And then we'll figure out at some point how we're going to turn this into, into money. And, and, and I agree with you. I think the rule of thumb is you can assume that Anything new now uh, is reaching more eyeballs than the old models, but they're also making less money. I think streaming is in that too. Like 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 uh, streaming, I'm sure, is, reaches way more eyeballs than DVDs did. But like everything else that reaches more eyeballs, it's making less money. Music's the same way now. Yeah, and so I just did a story about uh, what you know comedians are dealing with now, stand-ups. You know, uh, and so as you can imagine, you know most. Most the typical standup is not making Chappelle money or Seinfeld money, but I talked to uh, this one comedian, Liz Mealy, and she was telling me, you know, all about her social media 
presence. And like, if you look at the numbers, you know, she gets a lot of views on her like Instagram and TikTok and all these platforms. But, you know, she flat out told me that she uses that stuff to get people to shows. Now that she doesn't really have a, a like a product, her, her live performances, it's, you know, she's worried and they're all worried because you know, again, you're, you're trying to drive people to something that they purchase and now there's nothing to purchase. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. So how, how are they dealing with this? What's, what's the answer? Man. I mean, some of them are trying to sell merch. Some of them are doing, you know, uh, webcasts with, you know, download codes and trying to make money that way. I mean, I talked to one guy who was, you know, picking up census, you know, working for the census to try to get data because, you know, the, these people are already sort of hustling. And, and I remember talking to a comedian and he had a good point. He's like, you can't just go back to being a waiter, like, or, mm, yeah. you know, another blue collar job because they, they just, the service industry is, is totally shot right now. And, and, you know, you know, you know, what's interesting too. What's, what's interesting is I, if you think about it, we've all become that model that has become very unpopular. You know, you know, everyone says, hey, enough of working for exposure. That's a scam. Pay me. And, you know, everybody now kind of knows that if an employer, if a business tells you, hey, uh, I'm going to pay you with exposure, that's and then you'll make money on the, on the back end from the exposure. You know, that's a crock. That's a crock. But yeah, we've bought into that logic uh, when working for ourselves, like 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 we've kind of but into that logic in our relationship to ourselves as in I'm going to work for myself for free and then um, I'm going to do it for exposure and then later on that exposure is going to get me money like like we've we've bought into that same logic we just now do it with ourselves instead of with a big a big corporation yeah and it's kind of like it's funny because I think what what happens is we sort of trick ourselves into thinking that that it can pay off like I've had not a lot but I've probably had a few stories that I've written that I did for very little money or no money that have helped me get other gigs but that's it's almost like hitting the jackpot in a slot machine you know you you keep pumping the quarters in hoping to to hit big and sometimes it just doesn't come yeah and and that's pretty much the way everybody uh works now like like people think that die that model because uh people are becoming less accepting of it from you know big corporations and stuff but i think if any it's actually bigger than ever before because it's infected everything else as far as our day-to-day life because if you look so many people i see huge followings online right and they do it but they don't really make that much money when you pull the curtain away or what what happens now is this is what i think really kind of happened and it's actually worse than the old model right before the the old model would be like okay work for us for free then when um you'll get a bunch of exposure and then exposure will get you paid now the model is okay we're not going to exploit you by making you work for free and uh you know for eyeballs you know we're only going to pay you now what we want you to do is work for yourself for free generate your own exposure you know, uh, then come to us when um, you have the, the your own eyeballs, like you bring your own eyeballs to the table. So in a way, it's kind of like it's a better deal for them in a way, because before when they made you write for exposure, at least you got to use their platform for for getting the eyeballs you know whereas now not only not only are they not giving you so, so so now not only are you still doing free work to get exposure they're not even obligated to even uh help you 
get that anymore. You have to do it yourself. You have to uh, generate your own own exposure, and they'll still punish you when you don't transfer that exposure to paying numbers. You know, in the future, like they, they'll hire people who are big influencers, and then if the ratings don't happen, if people don't actually shell out money to buy HBO, you know, to watch these people behind a paywall, you know, it's all on you. Like, like I feel like there's a lot of no lose for corporations now in these new models you know you you build your name you shell out a lot of expenses you get your own exposure and then come to us when you're ready but if you don't deliver you know you're back out yeah basically it's like they they assume none of the risk and they can they can reap the rewards but you know they don't exactly they, they don't have exactly. to invest in you at all yeah exactly exactly thank you you said it much better <laughs> and more succinctly than, than i did they don't have to invest in you they don't have to do the risk you know so you know they don't so they don't have to even let you develop a voice on their platform they have to do anything with you you know just come come when you're ready with the eyeballs it's it's almost like you're giving them more value in a way right they you know they can yeah like the the advantage they they have the advantage basically i mean it's 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 tough i don't know what the answer is but i feel like stand-up comedians must really be feeling it just because there's so much more of them now than there ever was it's become i was telling somebody how like in the 90s and the arts like the big closet creative dream was uh the great american novel you know everybody wanted to have the great american novel then everybody had a screenplay in the top drawer unfinished or finished that they want to do and now i feel like everybody has a tight five in their in, the, in their in their drawer like you know somebody in accounting has a uh, secret type top uh, type five everybody you know and this is not to criticize anybody this is just saying the trends of what's the most popular uh creative avenue for, to, to people i feel like more stand-up comics than i ever remember so many of them have podcasts now there's just there's so many open mics now like before you there used to be a lot of readings you used to always like find like cafes and other stuff we're doing like readings like you know in the early days of hipsterdom and williamsburg was always these different like poetry and fiction readings and stuff and now like this is a million open mics in bushwick it's it's uh so th that can't be helping as far as battling for eyeballs right and and i think what might amplify that is that there's again there are so many platforms that people can like boost their signal or however you want to put it that not only are there more people not only are there more people out there trying to do it it seem it, it seems even more exponential because it's just easy to sort of project that onto like the whole country instead of just at an open mic Yes, very true, especially like with the uh, look at things like YouTube and stuff and all those um, views, insane views that something can go when it goes viral. You know, it's it's, uh, it's 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 pretty out there. And I think it's got to be weird also, like writing about it, because from your perspective, you're writing about it. There's so many things you can write about now, too. I mean, you, you can think peace about anything. You could think peace about I think it's kind of led to that flattening that we're talking about of there's no real middle brow, low brow, high brow anymore. Anything is up for grabs or anything can be taken as seriously or like as you want like what do you think are the pros and cons of that type of culture from the perspective of your job yeah so i will say that i feel at least you know what i do what i like about it is that it's not necessarily dependent on my opinion so most of my stuff is reported and i'll talk to a lot of different people and again there i have coworkers who are amazing at writing columns and recaps and stuff like that but i i guess most of my stuff is sort of dependent on the subject and so what i like about it is that every story is sort of different and i can you know e each project is sort of dependent just on this one subject so i i think for me it, it kind of forces me to you know look for new ideas and you know the the beauty of what i do is that it it's harder for me to just say oh my god i have nothing like i i don't have a take on this you know, if 
you know, again, there's so much stuff. It's it's hard to maintain um, a lot of opinions. It's hard to do that well. So I do feel fortunate in that a lot of my stuff is, again, you know, based on reporting. One thing I like about your stuff is that you treat everything kind of with the same seriousness. So like, for example, I was reading about, I was reading your article about living color you know you touch touched it into like the whole history but also like the history of black people in rock and alternative rock and their their history and, and you gave it like a pretty good deep dive but you also had one about first teenage mutant ninja turtle movie and pretty long it was pre- it was taken as seriously as the uh living color one and to some people on the surface you know they would think okay the living color one like that's a seminal band broke a lot of ground that gives us a long piece but the Ninja Turtle movie one should be just uh, a BuzzFeed piece with a lot of gifs in it and and done like a listicle. But, you know, you you, you treated it with the same serious, seriousness. You took it, you took both of them uh, equally serious. And the Living Color one was really, was really, sorry, the Ninja Turtle one was really interesting. I, I learned a lot from it that I didn't really think I could have gotten that much out of a article about the first Ninja Turtles movie, which I did like. But you know, like, like it wasn't that Family Guy version of nostalgia where it's like, hey, remember this? Isn't it cool that this existed? <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that. You you reported on it. You actually reported on it, and I walked away learning more than I knew about it before. Yeah, it's. it's <laughs> I, I think of I think of that Family Guy. Uh comparison a lot like the the south park episode where they talk about how family guy was developed by like manatees with ideas just like an idea balls just like a you know a a random collection and and to get to the ninja turtle story i think again totally silly movie people in rubber suits like i'm not going to deny that but um to me what made that interesting was that the sort of story behind it was interesting so you know i think there are a lot of good movies that don't necessarily or good movies or or popular movies we'll say because again you know it's debatable whether the ninja turtles movie was quote unquote good but you know it was a an insane production and i think people like reading about things that turned out well that maybe didn't seem like they were going to get get that way and and i have to say honestly i haven't watched the movie in its entirety but i've watched pieces of it uh watch it or reading your article i maybe want to watch it again but in the meantime i watched some clips i'll be honest it holds up a lot better than i thought it. there's something about that practical effects era that a lot of people i think especially people who are kind of technophiles are very prone to glamorize like you know cgi and everything and look back look back this favorably on you know like everything new is must automatically be better it's 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 more technologically advanced so it has to be progress but i'll give an example like john carpenter's like the thing and a lot of john carpenter's stuff that had practical effects like the fact that the people are in the room with something tangible and not with the green screen or reacting to a video game character makes the scene have more weight even if you can kind of tell that this is a prosthetic this is not real and do you see the thing remake that they had it was it was kind of a remake kind of a prequel and they and it had cgi effects the cgi effects just look horrible but on top of that that thing prequel uh i think i'd marry elizabeth winstead in it um they did the whole movie in practical effects uh they did the whole movie in practical effects then they thought you know what this is old school why are we doing this and they redid all the special effects with CGI. The pictures of the practical effects leaked all over the place. And they looked so much better. And everyone was like, what the hell were these people thinking? Like, they had a good, solid practical effects movie. And they just trashed all the existing trash practical effects to replace it with um, Nintendo 64 characters. 
<laughs> I mean, there's like a slickness that definitely detracts. Like a couple of examples of that from recent uh, months are the, you know, I, depending whether you like the Mandalorian, you know, the Star Wars show, that there was talk that they were going to do a, a CGI Baby Yoda. That character, and it became, I think it became, it was a puppet. And that that was like the most beloved thing from it. And also back to Ninja Turtles, you know, Michael Bay produced these live action Ninja Turtles movies in the last 10 years. And when I was interviewing people for the my story, three or four immediately told me that it's like, oh yeah, people come up to me in the streets and they're like, oh, the you know, yours is much better than the Michael Bay version. Because if you if you just go back and look at the trailer of those two Ninja Turtles movies, it just looks strange. It's like what you said. It's like watching a PlayStation game or something. Yeah. And and at first it seems cool because they can technically do a lot more stuff and they can they can have a lot more facial expressions. Like when I saw the clips of the old Ninja Turtle movie, right? The animatronics, was very limited facial expressions that they could do. I mean, what they did was amazing considering the technology at the time. It was definitely like a leap forward in a lot of ways. You know, the, the martial arts may not have been as fast as, you know, what they can do with the CGI, but there's a lot of things with computers that just aren't quite there yet. Like, for example, like when you land, how do you realistically land to convey weight? Like this thing has actual real physical weight and mm-hmm. then it's not just like bouncing weightless ap- apparition. Like, you know, like, like little things like that get lost. And when I was watching that, the clips from that Ninja Turtles one, like there's something about having the physical weight there, the physical presence, like that the, that the actor is not looking at thin air and acting in a room of nothing makes a difference, I think, psychologically to the viewer, even if it's unconscious. Like, maybe I'm not consciously thinking, hey, this guy's in a room by himself when I'm watching the CGI thing. But I think on some unconscious level, my brain is registering that. And that's something that has been lost, but nobody wants to turn back. Everyone thinks they're supposed to be doing this other thing. As as shown by the example of the people who actually made a whole practical effects movie that looked great and just scrapped it to do a worse (laughs) movie. They spent more money to make it look worse. It's like peer pressure or something. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And maybe even be, even be peer pressure on yourself. Like maybe nobody else is pressuring you, but you just see what the other guy is doing and psych yourself out, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just related, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was watching Terminator 2 last night, for example. Um, and, you know, at the time, those effects were stunning. Um, and it's still holds up and i think it holds up because a it's a mix of interesting action stuff that is tactile and you know car chases and all of that but also it's it's kind of used sparingly yes. so you know you're not constantly reminded of it i i also think what helps with it is they were cognizant they were cognizant of the limitations of it so they didn't overplay their hand whereas i think now well well there was a really bad period in the in the 2000s like the most famous one being the scorpion king rock scene (laughs) where people were so carried away with the new technology that they tried to make it do everything but they didn't actually know how to do those things those things yet so uh i feel like you know james cameron knew like okay this thing is not going to do human expressions correctly let's let's rein it in let's let's we know what it can do like an amorphous blob or a faceless running thing it can do that but a face you know, let's not make it do that whereas scorpion king they tried to make it act they tried to make it um <laughs> act. and at that time even the human rock was not good at acting yet much less uh yeah yeah his his uh computer doppelganger there's a scene in the first Harry Potter too where they spend way too much time on Harry Potter's face. He's like riding this monster and it looks horrible. It looks like uh Transformers Beast Wars, like that old <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's really it's really bad. But yeah, now they want CGI to do everything. They want CGI to be the room, they want it to be the car, they want it to be to actually act to be the face. It's it's very bizarre. 
I mean, it's interesting because, it, for example, like the the Fast and the Furious movies, I feel like those are a good mix because something about car chases is still a pretty visceral experience for people. Um, and uh, yeah, you you you. St- I still feel like a lot of action movies now are just you know, just like things clanging together, you know? I remember I saw this thing with um, the Fast and the Furious, uh, a clip of the shooting of the eighth one uh, where the director, F. Gary Gray, was like putting up on social media, like things from the shoot. And there's this scene where they're like racing through the streets and all these cars are falling out of buildings and parking garages and like landing on the street and they have to like race through all these like falling cars. And what surprised me was that they actually filmed a bunch of cars being just shoved out of buildings. It was it was actually real. And I, I'm like, there's nothing to that. I mean, it just lends weight to what you said that... Uh, they still actually do a lot of physical stuff with the cars. Like a lot of people have been tempted to just CGI a bunch of fake cars falling out of buildings, and they would have just like looked like they were bouncing and stuff when in the final <laughs> yeah, the and final product. A good example is you know the the last Mad Max movie because you know I'm sure they they retouched a lot of things with CGI, but all those vehicles were real. Again, it just seems so obvious now. Like wow, of course you have to do that because it's going to make you feel like you're in these ridiculous car chases. But it, again, it's not commonplace anymore more at all. And I saw a video essay and something that's really interesting about that Mad Max movie. There's actually a lot of CGI in it. There's hmm. a there's a ton of it, but what they did was they knew what to not make CGI. Right. So basically, a lot of the actual road and a lot of the um desert, it's really outdoors. It's really on location. It's like it's like a green screen really, but they they do a lot of stuff to enhance the um environment and do all this other stuff but the cars and the people like like they know the limitations i think it's a perfect example of knowing your, your limitations so it's like uh the best cgi is stuff that you actually don't even know is uh cgi like, like they're not actively saying wow they did a good job in that cgi um so when i started making of it i was kind of surprised at a lot of little subtle stuff that was actually cgi that i didn't know it didn't really matter it wasn't central to the story the stuff that was central the stuff where your eye was going to be glued to the stuff that needed to actually move and interact and uh, especially interact with people, they made uh, practical effects. And it made for a really nice, really nice visual movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we can all agree the best CGI was uh, Superman's mouth in Justice League. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> you know what? I admit I have not seen that movie, but why is it? Is it pretty bad? Oh, my God. They... um. Henry Cavill had a mustache that he was contractually he was contractually obligated not to not to shave for his Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, he, he you you've never seen his mustache. You have to see his mustache. I'm gonna send you a link. You have okay, to see okay. his mustache. Yeah, because describing it is not going to uh, <laughs> do. When, when you see it, you really realize that they just did not care about about the movie. They just they just didn't they just didn't care. They were like, hey, whatever happens, happens. Like like there's talk, right, about the um the movie where they said that Warner Brothers just kind of gave up on Zack Snyder's vision. They just wanted to get it done with mm-hmm. and do damage control. And when you see what that they released a movie, it looks like this. Okay, I just put the link in the room. So just okay. just take a look at it. <laughs> there's no better proof than than his than his weird mouth. <laughs> Okay, I'm opening it and, now. And you yeah. know what? If you want to watch the whole thing, it's 51 seconds, you can because we can just cut it out and we can just cut out this part and post. I'm checking now. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Oh my god. That is that's it's stunning. I mean, it's funny because you know they clearly were trying to capitalize on you know like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you know whatever your feelings on those movies are, like it's just one of those things you 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 can't just half ass, you know. Um, 
And yeah, and it seems like that's what they did. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, like, I think the first two underperformed so bad, Man of Steel and and uh, Batman v Superman and got so much uh, bad, you know, bad word of mouth. They had to do this movie. It was already underway for because, you know, it was supposed to be two movies. They want to do like uh, the Harry Potter treat- treatment where like the movie's broken up into two parts. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. They announced suddenly it's only going to be one movie. The main villain was supposed to be Darkseid. They just took, they just took Darkseid out. <laughs> so <laughs> so it became clearer and clearer. They were just going to just half-ass the hell out of this. Um, yeah. So they weren't even trying. But I'm sure at the end of the day, this was still expensive <laughs> to oh, hire the yeah. guy to uh, remove the mustache and do such a poor job at it. It, it looks like they said, whatever the first try you do is it. We don't care what comes. <laughs> Just get your it first one take, yeah. Yeah, your first run at it, you know, we're not going to even bother, bother retry. So, so <laughs> anything they put in there, you know, did you ever see the Conan O'Brien thing that he used to do? Where yes. He had an animated mouth on somebody's photo. Yep. If they came back with that, I think they would have left it in the movie. They would have been like, okay, that's fine. It's just. <laughs> well, yeah, at least that would have been funny, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, how do you feel about the state of. Um, media and media journalism like in in general because the two kind of feed off of each other like if if you're writing about media then as media changes for better or worse you kind of had to adapt uh to it and and likewise which i think it does not get enough credit media has to adjust to the the journalism and the fandom as as well like like i feel like a lot of shows and movies now make scenes and do things with tumblr gifs in mind with um Twitter engagement in mind, you know, so I, I kind of want to know from your end how you feel like the relationship between media and journalism and fandom are all kind of evolving with each other. I mean, it, it sometimes it feels like these shows are like their own little economies. I mean, we, for example, our Game of Thrones coverage was just really, it was, I think it was really good. I mean, I'm biased, but yeah, like the amount of content that you can produce from one show sometimes is just it's it's crazy and and people love it and they they have voracious appetites but i think the problem happens when like shows that sort of just aim for that instead of doing their own thing yeah yeah that that happens a lot like 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 here's a quick example um i used to watch this show called arrow which honestly in retrospect it was never really good but it it, it was it was watchable mm-hmm. you know but they started writing the show clearly for the shippers on tumblr and they made like uh these couple pairings and choices based on what people on Tumblr were saying, and the show took a hit for the worst for it. Yeah, it's um, it's this fine line of like not wanting to piss off your fans, but also right. I mean, the the one of the more famous examples of this is is it the show Jericho, which was like from fifteen years ago, where there was a campaign to to bring it back. You know, I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah, yeah, and and. Um, I don't know if you know this, you you may know this, but, you know, that phenomenon is actually not new. I mean, Star Trek was a lot of people think saved by a letter writing campaign in the 60s. Again, that, that kind of emboldening of fandom has definitely existed in the past, but at the same time, it just hasn't been as intense as it's gotten. I mean, I I once wrote a story about a, an old Simpsons message board um, that was on Usenet, which is like an early internet service or, or uh, you know, system way of going online. And 
you know, the, the writers from the show used to go on this, this news group and would post what the episodes were going to be. And there was a writer that I talked to that, you know, he, and this is just the, of its time. He, you know, he got a, a internet set up through UCLA because that was the only way to get an internet connection back then in the early nineties. And what do you know, back then fans started going in on him and just like calling him names and being jerks and, you know, being abusive, verbally abusive. And he said he eventually had to like rip the internet cord out of the wall and just stop. And I mean, I guess my point is, you know, well, that kind of... A quick question. Uh, Did he have to rip the internet cord out of the wall because he couldn't stop himself from going back to it? Uh, that and just he was sick of people. He had people calling his office, like message board uh, users saying that the Simpsons sucked. And this was in like 1992. So, wow. you know, it, it's just funny how these cycles repeat themselves again. It's not as intense as it, as, uh, it is now, but it, it definitely existed. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.